Well, if you have your Bible with you, I want to invite you to turn with me, please, back to the book of Hebrews, chapter 5. And for those visiting, welcome again in the name of Christ. We're studying through the book of Hebrews as a church together. Today we'll read verses 1 through 10. Verses 1 through 10. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. Let's uh, pray together, and then let's read. Our gracious God and our Heavenly Father, You are alone our help and our strength, very present aid in trouble. We ask, O God, that You would be near to us and help us, Lord. Pray that You would help me as a preacher of the word to rightly divide the scriptures, rightly apply the scriptures with wisdom, care, and love. May we all together, minister and congregation alike, come under the authority of your scriptures, of your word, and to delight in the scriptures, to find strength and joy and energy from the Spirit's ministry to us through the word. Lord, do not leave us, do not forsake us, do not hand us over to spiritual poverty, but rather, Lord, give us an abundant feast. Let us not look up and go hungry today. We ask for Christ's sake, amen. Hebrews chapter 5, starting at verse 1, for every high priest taken from among men, is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided since he himself also is beset with weakness. And because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins. As for the people, so also for himself. And no one takes the honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Just as he says also in another passage, You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, He became to all those who obey him 
the source of eternal salvation. Being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Amen. Sometimes I have to write the title before I finish the sermon. (laughs) And if I had to retitle it after working yesterday and this morning, I think I'd retitle this Persevering in Peddling because of the priesthood. Persevering in peddling because of the priesthood. Remember, boys and girls, last week, how we opened with the illustration that the Christian life is like riding a bicycle. Or if you're not yet a bicycle rider, maybe you ride a big wheel or maybe you ride a tricycle. And you know that you have to pedal in order to move. How many of you have used the thread that's been built? Some of you have used the thread. I don't know, Tim, if you remember, we, Tim Garnett and I, used the thread once, and we went biking, and if you start at Hollis Hand, you will soon learn, after you pass the McMansions on the right, uh, that country club goes uphill as you work your way to the college, and you will pedal, or you will fall to one side or the other of that bicycle pretty quickly. The Christian life is not all downhill and coasting. Now, God does give us reprieves in our lives, and there are times where it is seemingly like a pleasant coast. Nice breeze in the hair and nice wind in the face and not too much sweat or effort. But there are other times and many times, and this is something young people you may want to keep in mind, because I think God often eases us into the deep waters as we get older. But uh, in your early years, he's happy to let you get in the shallow end. You're going to need to remember these words that uh, life is at times going to get more difficult. And you're going to have to remember this sermon. You're going to have to remember to pedal. And that we persevere only by pedaling. Now, That is one of the great themes of the book of Hebrews. So the question is, given that the author of Hebrews is calling us to peddling, why does he then go back to talking about the priesthood again? He, He talks about Christ as a priest, and then he urges us to continue in the faith. And then he goes back to the priesthood again. And then he exhorts us, when we get back to chapter 6, to more peddling again. And what is the connection between perseverance and the high priesthood? Well, I think we see that when we are called to persevere, one of the things we need to keep in mind is that God has done really the hard work for us already. We're not being asked to peddle in order to obtain justification in heaven. We're being asked to peddle because Jesus Christ has already obtained justification in heaven for you. That is, God has already done the hard work, and the author of Hebrews is reminding this congregation that is being tempted to stop peddling and maybe even go backwards 
to quit the journey and go back and submit themselves to the types and the shadows of the old covenant rather than persevering in the new covenant. And so the author of Hebrews brings these two themes really together and goes from one to the other and back again. And so today we're back with the high priest. I mean, we kind of were there last week at the end of chapter 4 that the high priest is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what I want to do is divide our message today in two main parts. The first is the is really the purpose of the high priest and the qualifications of the high priest. And then I want us to talk about how it relates to perseverance, secondly. So we're going to see in verses 1 through 4, the purpose of the high priest. Secondly, we'll see how Christ then fulfills that purpose of the high priest in his life and his ministry, and why that leads us to the application of perseverance. All right, so those are my three points. Verses 1 through 4, the purpose of the high priest. Verses 5 through 10, how Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of that purpose, and then how it leads, thirdly, by way of application to perseverance. Now let's look at verses 1 through 4 together. Because here, the author of the book of Hebrews is comparing uh, the, the work of Christ to what we see in the Old Testament in the office of the priesthood. Let's look at verse 1 together. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sin. Now, I want you to notice four things about the purpose of the high priest. The first comes from verse 1 here, and that is that the high priest is a mediator. The high priest is a mediator. Number two, the high priest is a teacher. We're going to see that from verse 2. Number three, the high priest is one who offers sacrifices. And number four, the high priest is somebody who is called. He is a mediator, a teacher, one who offers sacrifice, and one who is called by God. You see that in verse 1, 2, 3, and 4. Now, we were talking, young people, if you remember, last Sunday night. We're in chapter 8 of the Westminster Confession of Faith on the chapter of Christ the Mediator. And notice here that what is verse 1 talking about? That the, one of the purposes of the priesthood was to serve as a mediator between God and his people. For every high priest taken from among men, he's a representative of men, of you, is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. So that the high priest is somebody who stands in between God and you. Now imagine, imagine for a moment, for some reason, you're at an NFL practice. And they decide they want to give you the full experience. (laughs) And they put some pads and helmets on you, 
and they put you out on the field for a drill. Maybe it's the old-fashioned Oklahoma drill, which I, I think these days you're not allowed to do anymore, but I could be wrong about that, where they just have the two guys run at each other. Boom. But you're out there, and 40 yards away is the biggest, baddest, fastest linebacker that the NFL has. Okay? Whoever your favorite linebacker is. Maybe it's Roquan Smith. And you're there in your pads and helmet. And the coach is about to say, go. And the linebacker is going to run right at you. And you're, you're about to be a dead person. Okay? But then imagine that there's a lineman on the sideline and he sees what's about to take place. And he decides, this isn't a fair fight. And the biggest offensive lineman goes out on the field, and he stands between you and that linebacker and tells the linebacker, you're not touching him. And he turns around to you and says, don't worry, I got this. And he defends you from that linebacker. And you go home in one piece after that practice. What the author of Hebrews is telling us is that the priest, particularly the high priest, is somebody who stands between you and one who by nature is at enmity against you, one who by nature is full of wrath and justice against you and your sins. Notice that verse 1 says that he offers both gifts and sacrifices for sins. That is, that the Lord needs to be placated in his divine justice. And the high priest, typologically in the Old Testament, by offering bulls and goats and calves, was offering as a mediator those sacrifices that pointed to the sacrifice of Jesus one day, even though Jesus in the Old Testament had not yet come. But it was prefiguring the work that Jesus one day would do as the mediator. And he is like that lineman standing between you and the linebacker. And he is the one who protects you. And then after the practice, the linebacker gives you his autograph. Because now you're friends. You're even through the work of the mediator reconciled to the one who's about to hit you. The author of Hebrews is saying that the first function of the priesthood was to serve as that mediator. But then secondly, notice in verse 2 that the high priest would also not only serve as a mediator, a go-between, but he was also a teacher. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided since he himself is also beset with weakness so that he is an instructor to those. Now, some people uh, sin by way of ignorance. They just need better instruction. They need better understanding. Maybe you can remember uh, days like that yourself where you didn't understand something. You know, I, I can remember as a new Christian, I thought it was okay early in my early Christian, to think that parachurches could baptize. Um, later, as I learned the Bible better, I realized, no, that's not a function of a parachurch ministry. That's really reserved for the church proper. So sometimes we sin in ignorance. We don't know. And that's what 
The high priest, his other job was to teach the people of God what the law said and what the law pointed to, the work of Christ on behalf. And then third, we see that he was one who offered sacrifice. Look at verse 3. And because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins. As for the people, so also for himself. So he being a sinner in the old covenant would offer a sacrifice first for his own sins and the sins of his own family. And then he would offer sacrifices for the people of God. And then notice, fourthly, the author of Hebrews says, in addition to being a mediator, a teacher, and somebody who offers a sacrifice, he was somebody that was particularly called to God. He didn't take this to himself, but that it was God who appointed the priesthood. So you see in verse 4, and no one takes the honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. Now, why does he go into all of this? I think he does so because he's setting us up for what? To show us how wonderful the work and person of Jesus is. And so he gives us this detailed list of the purpose of the high priest in order to show us that Jesus brings all of this about, that Jesus is our mediator. Jesus is our primary teacher. Jesus is the one who offers the sacrifice of himself on the cross. Jesus is the one who is called by God, the Father, to this ministry. And that Jesus did not take this on in his own self, but the author of Hebrews is showing us that indeed it was the Father who chose him. And so just as the author of Hebrews begins with mediator, then teacher, then sacrificer, then one who is called, then what does he do? He then begins here with one who is called. Now, it, this is not a strict chiasm, but it does have some appearance of it. If you looked at verse 5, notice he works his way a little bit backwards here. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So he quotes here from Psalm 2, and later he'll quote in verse 6 from Psalm 110. Let me just say by way of aside that those are important psalms to learn. It's always a good idea if you want to know what are the... If I'm beginning to read my Bible and I'm beginning to uh, try to become a Christian, where do I start, especially in the Old Testament, given that there's so much material? I think one of the best places for you to start is to go to those books that are most frequently commented on by the New Testament. And so in the Psalms, Psalm 2 is a good psalm to study, Psalm 110. I would look at Psalm 22 and Psalm 23 because those are what we call messianic psalms. They speak of Jesus maybe most clearly. That's not to say other psalms don't speak about Jesus, but there are some portions of Scripture that speak in greater clarity than others. They all speak of Christ, Jesus says in John chapter 5, but some with greater clarity. So the author of Hebrews is saying in verse 2, he's quoting here, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now this is not the only place where that verse is cited in the New Testament. It is cited also in the book of Acts, 
when they were talking about the resurrection of Christ. Here it's being applied to Christ being appointed as a priest, as the high priest. He is acknowledged as the high priest. Now, some commentators think that this idea of today I have begotten you speaks to the eternal generation of the Son. That is, the Son is eternally begotten by the Father. And what does eternal, eternally begotten mean? Well, I'm not sure I can put it more simply than John Frame put it, and that is, it is difficult for us to understand, except it's the way we distinguish the Father from the Son. And, and so we use this phrase, eternally begotten. He is the Son. He is the second person of the Trinity. Christ, the high priest here, is one who is fully God, truly God, yet he is distinct from God. That's what John says in his prologue in John chapter 1. He was with God, distinct from God, and yet he was God. And so here, the author of Hebrews is making the point that Jesus is our high priest. You are my son. Today I begotten you. That is, Christ as the son is the one who must satisfy the work of the priesthood. Why is that? Well, one of the reasons you see that in verse 2 and in verse 3. Remember that the earthly mere man high priest, the one who was begotten from the world, that is Aaron and Eleazar and all the priests by ordinary propagation that come from Aaron, Notice that verse 2 says they're beset with what? Weakness. And in verse 3 that they offer sacrifices for sins for the people, but then what? So also for themselves. Here's where we see the superiority of Jesus Christ as high priest. Christ needs to offer no sacrifice for himself as a high priest because he is himself in his human nature without any sin or corruption being the eternally begotten Son of God, conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit, as we said in the Nicene Creed this morning. He is truly God and truly man, and therefore he need not offer a sacrifice for himself. And therefore the sacrifice that Jesus suffers in giving of himself rather than that of an animal is a sacrifice which really, truly will atone for our sins, unlike the sacrifices of the Old Covenant. Those sacrifices were sufficient for that day and era, but only because God had purposed that Jesus Christ, the great high priest, would fulfill those sacrifices. Otherwise, those sacrifices would be absolutely worthless. The sacrifices of the Old Covenant are accepted by God, and I believe that the believer who offered a sacrifice like that left the temple justified. They left with the forgiveness of, of God's, uh, the, the forgiveness of their sins by God. But again, it was only because of Christ and what Jesus does a thousand years later that the Lord Jesus Christ, as the sinless high priest, would interpose himself between you and God, or Abraham and God, or David and God, or you pick any Old Testament person you want to pick, 
It is still Christ, the high priest, who is standing between that old covenant saint and God. And it is because of the work of Jesus Christ, you and I stand blameless with great joy before God. And that's why we always, always, always are emphasizing Jesus Christ in this church. Why we're always preaching about the cross. Why are we always preaching about Jesus Christ? Because you and I are sinners. And we are always, by nature, trying to justify ourselves through our own works. We are always trying to demonstrate our own righteousness to God. And that is not acceptable to God. We always have to come back. You know, Martin Luther said, you have to repent of your own righteousness as well as your sins. We always are to be casting ourselves back upon our high priest. Our high priest, Jesus Christ. So this is why if, if, if you're visiting or if you're not yet a communicant member, we want you first and foremost to make it your life's business to find out about Jesus and about Jesus Christ. I'm not here to teach mere moralisms to you. I'm not here to teach you to do this and do that chiefly. Now, there are times for exhortation. But the, the chief ministry of, of this church is to exalt Christ. Even the Holy Spirit. Some churches exalt the Spirit. Even the Spirit says that His job is to what? Exalt the ministry of Christ. That's why theologians sometimes speak of the Spirit as the shy person of the Trinity because he takes not the honor to himself. He doesn't make himself the, the, the primary person of the Trinity. But his job is to preach Christ and to apply Christ, to apply the Lord Jesus Christ. I, my job as a minister is to get out of the way. And this is why Protestants have avoided the term priest for the minister. Now, not all Protestants, but most Protestants do that. Why, do we, why are we averse to calling ourselves priests? We are averse to it because we want to get out of the way. We are ministers. What is a minister? A minister is a servant. What is he serving? He's putting Christ forward. That, that's, uh, we, we want you to rely on Jesus, not on Boyd Miller. I can't atone for anybody's sins. You can't come to me and confess sins to me, and I can't absolve you. It's Christ who absolves you of sin and guilt. Now, I'm not against, you know, if you need help, going to a brother and acknowledging the weakness and the sins that you need help with. So I'm not against that one anothering ministry, but that's often not what others, such as the Roman Catholic Church, are trying to do when they go to the priest. They're trying to get a mediator there. And I'm saying the mediator is Christ. Right? Hebrews chapter 5 is saying, go to Christ. He's your mediator. So if, you're, if you find yourself stuck in sin, for example, let's say you're struggling right now, and I have no knowledge of any of this, okay? So don't think, oh, Boyd knows. No, I don't know. But if you're struggling with sin, particularly right now, what do I do? You know, I'm, I'm tired of falling into this same thing. Well, you go 
to God. See, when we fall into sin, our nature is to want to avoid God. And that's why when people fall into sin, particularly if that sin becomes known, then they start skipping church. I think it's the shame and it's the embarrassment of it all. But, you know, that's not the right response, is it? Because you, none of us are here without sin. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You know, the church always looks one way from the perspective of the pew, and then it, it always looks a little bit differently, you know, once you become an officer in that church and you start doing the work of ministry. Um, and you become all the more profoundly aware of the burden that Christ took on himself when he took on our sins and died for those sins. So we, we want as Protestants, as good Protestants, to preach Christ as the priest. Jesus is the priest. Now, there are applications of the priesthood of all believers in the church. Martin Luther spoke of, of that, and I'm not against that idea. Uh, the Bible speaks of the priesthood of believers, but we offer what? Sacrifices of thanksgiving. We don't offer sacrifices of atonement. We offer sacrifices of intercession. But nothing like the sacrifice in the sense that Jesus offers in himself. So he, he appeals to Psalm 2, you are my son. This is the father, boys and girls, in verse 5, speaking to the son. This is a Psalm of David. Typologically, it was speaking of David, but it was more than David. It's the son of David. It's Jesus. You, the son, are my son. I have begotten you. That's the words of the father speaking to the son. And then in verse 6, the author of Hebrews quotes from Psalm 110. You are a priest forever. Notice the connection there. You are my son, the father says. You are my son. You are my priest. You are my son. You are my priest. And then he says, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, what is the order of Melchizedek? Basically, this is saying that this is a priesthood that is not of the lineage of Aaron. Who is Melchizedek, boys and girls? You remember Melchizedek from the book of Genesis, boys and girls? He's that kind of, can I use the word strange, figure that suddenly comes on the scene out of nowhere. And Abraham uh, gives to him a, a tithe. And remember that what the point of that the New Testament makes is that if Abraham, who's the father of the future priests of Aaron, is offering a tithe to this priest, i.e., or therefore, you're supposed to learn what? Melchizedek is greater than Aaron. Abraham, the father of Aaron, gives tithes to Melchizedek, mysterious priest who's the king of Salem, who is also without beginning, we're told. I think, again, language that's pointing to Christ. And he gives a tithe to Melchizedek. And so the, 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 what the New Testament does with that is it says, look, this is a picture of Christ. Whether you believe that Melchizedek was a, a historical figure, a, a man who lived in Abraham's day, or whether you believe it's a pre-incarnate Christ, the picture, the point here 
for our purposes is this, is that, this, that, that Christ is the priest according to the Melchizedek, order of Melchizedek. He is, the, he is the one that is greater than even the priesthood that offered the old covenant sacrifices of goats and bulls and calves. And then, notice here, Jesus fulfills this through, we see here, his sufferings. Um, in verse 7, we see that Christ prays. I think this is probably fulfilled chiefly in the mind of the author here at Gethsemane. Notice verse 7. In the days of his flesh, that is when Jesus was incarnate, Jesus had become a man. The Son of God had taken human flesh. He, Christ, offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears. When did Jesus do that? Well, I think probably... I suspect there were multiple times. We don't always know what he prayed, for example, when he separated himself from the disciples, you know, when they were rowing at night and he was up on the mountain praying. Uh, the 40 days of fasting, this might be applicable to that as well, but it's chiefly, I think, clearly seen in Gethsemane, isn't it? As Christ, not once, not twice, but three times throws himself, prostrates himself on the ground. A stone's distance, a stone's throws distance from Peter and, and James and John. What is he doing? He is pleading with the Father. Before he goes to the cross, he is pleading with the Father if there's any other way to accomplish this atonement. Father, let it be done. Let this cup pass. What is that cup? It's the cup of judgment. And the Old Testament prophets would speak about the, the wine of God's judgment mixed with wrath, poured out upon the wicked. And here Jesus is taking up that illusion and he's speaking of the wrath and judgment to come upon himself because of the sins of you and me. And he is saying, Father, I don't, in my human nature, I, I'm, I'm tremble at the thought of drinking this cup, of suffering this wrath and judgment, this eternal judgment. If there's some way to atone for God's people in a different way. But not my will, Lord, let thine will be done. And he takes the cup and essentially he goes to Golgotha. Cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I'm forsaken because God's wrath is poured out on the head of Jesus Christ. That's the cup here. So Jesus, with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And remember, what was one of the temptations that Jesus suffered on the cross? It was to come down off that cross. Come down from the cross. I, I believe it very well may have been satanically inspired. That those who were mocking Jesus at the foot of the cross did so under the influence of Satan. That it was Satan mocking the Son of God on the cross, saying, come down from that cross and we'll believe on you to be the Son of God. And yet Christ drank of the cup of his Father's wrath. He stays on that cross. 
Look at verse 8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. Now you say, well, pastor, I thought Jesus was perfect already as the son of God. Why in verse 9? Why in verse 8 does it say he needed to learn obedience? And then in verse 9, having been made perfect. How, I thought Jesus was perfect already. Well, certainly he was perfect as the eternal son of God in his divine nature. And yes, in his human nature, he was without sin. But even in his human nature, he was not yet perfected to the point of being ready to go to the cross. From the time he became incarnate. This is why Jesus had to mature. This is why Jesus had to go through boyhood, his teen years. This is why Jesus had to become a man. This is why Jesus had to begin his public ministry at the age of 30 and suffer many trials and temptations so that he might become that perfect substitute for us on the cross. There was, there's not to say there was any deficiency in Jesus at any moment in his human nature, but that he was not yet ready, sufficient for taking on the cross as a sacrifice for us until that appointed time from the Father. And so how did God, the Father, prepare the Son for the cross? Through the things Jesus suffered in his human nature. So the Father was wisely guiding the Son in his earthly life to make him the perfect sacrifice for sin. Now I want to get to the applications. For we see the purpose of the high priesthood and we see how Jesus fulfills it. But first let me say that what is the greater context again? The greater context here is he's speaking to a congregation that is being tempted to leave Christ for the old shadows. Maybe they're suffering. Maybe they're being persecuted for the faith in Christ. Maybe they're being, you know, Paul said, you know, if I preach circumcision, I wouldn't be persecuted, but I'm preaching Christ. And for that, he was being persecuted. And maybe there were believers here that were suffering. And I want to present that sympathetically to you. And because I, I don't want us to feel like we're above that ourselves of leaving the faith. So what, what does all this priesthood have to do with peddling the bike? Well, as I said in the beginning, first of all, Christ, God in Christ, has done the hard work already. That is, boys and girls, you and I keep peddling our bike for Christ because of what Jesus Christ has already done for you. He's done the hard work for you. And therefore, you pedal not to try and obtain your salvation, not to earn it, but you pedal because it is already obtained for you. Think about it this way. When Jesus died on the cross, what are we told? What was the miracle that took place at the temple? Remember, Jesus is crucified outside the walls of Jerusalem. And if you went back in to the city of Jerusalem, through the gate, and made your way up the hill to the temple, what was the miracle that took place at that moment that Christ cried out, it is finished? It was the miracle of God separating the curtain. 
that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. And it was split in two, we are told. Now, this was not just some teeny tiny thin piece of fabric. This was a huge thick curtain that would do bodily damage to you if it fell on you. And it was miraculously split by the death of Jesus Christ, signifying, among many things, that you had a bold entrance now to the throne of God. That is, that the peddling we do, I think the, 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 where these two thoughts come together is, Jesus Christ is my priest, has split the veil, and now I have all the reason not to backslide and leave God, but to go boldly to him. I have more reason to approach God now. Because now, not only is the sin atoned for, but I am invited by the New Testament, I am invited by the gospel to go as a son or a daughter to a father. And so, for example, if we have such bold access to God, if I can make it practical, then why not pray more? What happens, what's the first part that we quit on when we stop peddling? I think it's the secret place. I think it's private prayer. It's the place where only the Father sees. It may not be the visible church. It may not be attending church. It may not be listening to sermons. Look, Herod loved to listen to John the Baptist preach. We're told he loved listening to sermons. But what was the what was the what is the area? John Owen said that it, it was it was the abandonment of the prayer closet where apostasy begins. And so I think one of the ways that we avoid drifting away from God, and we're going to take this up, we're going to talk about the peril of falling away when we get to Hebrews 6, is that we need to remember that the holy place, the holy of holies, has got a huge welcome sign over it. There's a huge invitation because the Son has put his blood on that mercy seat for us to go. And therefore, we have reason to pray more than less. The way to God through Jesus Christ has been opened to you. Now, as I said earlier, young people, children, um, life will sometimes be challenging. You're going to find this out if you haven't already. Life is going to have its challenges. Those challenges are going to test what you're going to do. Are you going to pedal? Or are you going to quit on God? Are you going to go to God more in those times of difficulty? Or are you going to say, this is too much. If God wouldn't give me this, if he really loved me. And that's a real temptation for us, isn't it? The evil one would suggest to us that we ought to leave God because the Lord isn't giving us all we want. We need to keep peddling because of what the Lord has done for us. Teenagers, one way to keep going, 
really the only way to keep going, is for you teenagers to make sure that Jesus Christ is your personal priest. Take Jesus as your personal priest. You don't need to go to a confessional booth. Just go to your room and take Christ there. You know, sometimes maybe it's our own fault as elders or as a church that we make it seem that, you know, becoming a communicant is a big, ugly, scary thing. You know, I'm going into some dark room. There's a spotlight going to be put on me. You know, maybe they waterboard. Who knows? Um, let me let me suggest here it couldn't be easier. You know, we we as elders, particularly, we're on your side in this issue. We want you to pedal on your own, and that means taking Christ by faith. And accepting him as your Lord and Savior, trusting in him. He's chosen of God for you. His sacrifice is accepted by God for you. He's opened the way for you. He's done all these things that we've talked about with regard to the priesthood for you. All you need to do is receive him. Now let me finish lastly with those of you who are adults. As we said last week, quoting one minister, I think it's William Still, but we don't know. Sinclair Ferguson left him unnamed, but I have a feeling it's William Still. And William Still, you remember I said last week, said that it meant that most older men do not finish well. And so those of us who are adults need to hear this as well. There is going to be that natural declension of body and mind, which will no doubt present challenges to us. And there is, with age, the temptation to rest on past laurels. And maybe even to think that there is really not much more progress to be made in sanctification. But we who are adults, whether young adults or middle-aged adults, or senior adults, we all have to keep pedaling. And we get pedaling when we keep our eyes fixed on the author and finisher and high priest of our faith. Amen.